Friends, the divine Jesus moved from Judea to Galilee. Divine, as in from God. He's Jesus, of course. Divinity has always been central to a Christian understanding of his identity. But for some reason this week, his divinity and his particular choices as divinity, these are speaking to me. Partly it's happening because it's the season of, of Epiphany. Epiphany calls us to intentionally look for the manifestations of divinity in and around Jesus, the star for the magi, miraculous and divine, the voice at his baptism where God claimed, this child is mine, his first miracle where Jesus turned water into wine, the temptation in the wilderness where the devil attempted to get Jesus to utilize divine power to dominate, and Jesus' response was, no, don't test me, it's God who's great. And all these stories that we tell in the season of Epiphany to remember Jesus' divinity and his way of being divine in the world are stories that spoke to me this week. Partly Jesus' divinity is speaking to me right now because human leaders and human answers seem so inadequate to meet human and global need. Amen? I read the debates about tanks in the ranks of nations from the U.S. and Poland and Germany. Does the world further arm Ukraine and its fight against Russia? And what does this mean? And who goes in first? What human can guide these decisions? What humans should have guided decisions years and even months ago? We need divine manifestations over military conversations. I read about the need for the debt ceiling being raised, and I wonder what all this conversation really means. I mean, how does the U.S. struggle to meet its financial obligations when simultaneously there are individuals with personal wealth more abundant than that of many entire nations? We need the divine to guide our economy. I, I grieve the undoing of bedrock commitments to the asylum process as rules are being changed at our borders as we speak wondering how this will contribute to further global disorder. What can we trust? Who can we trust with decisions? We need the divine to guide our human rights conversations and national security debates. I'm overwhelmed by the catastrophic direction of this warming earth, and no human seems sufficient to guide the way for creation's betterment. We need guidance from the divine. I think some combination of all these things and more has me feeling at my core that we need a divine savior, one from God, one who firstly is truly from God. We need a savior whose main goal is to put on display the divine way of life and connection with very God. And God in this savior might give us direction in all things. Taking actions without God's lead seems futile to me in so many arenas. Friends, this epiphany, remember the good news. We have such a savior. Jesus Christ came from God, divine and human, and lived among us full of grace and truth. He lived in a real place, in real time and space. Actually, he lived in, in more than one place. He moved around with real intentionality, guided by God. And all of this made Jesus the right savior for then and the right savior for 2023. I was really glad this week to think about the divine Jesus moving away from the area just outside of the religious and societal capital of Jerusalem, where John the Baptist had been in ministry. John had, bless his ambition, been trying really hard to call Judea and Jerusalem to a new way of organizing society under God. He was encouraging a cleansing, a renewal, announcing that the kingdom of God was drawing near. He was announcing the kingdom of God was at hand. 
and it was an announcement of theocracy, God rule, instead of rule of occupiers, and he was announcing this with an earshot of religious authorities largely beholden to the emperor in Rome. He was announcing renewal with God as ultimate sovereign within earshot of Sadducees from the Jerusalem elite, within earshot of the high priest appointed by Rome, within earshot of the scribes appointed by Rome-elected high priests. These leaders would have argued themselves that God is our sovereign. How, John, how dare John challenge that? But John and the community he was calling together begged to differ. He called these so-called conveyors of God's sovereign rule a brood of vipers deceitful like the viper in the Garden of Eden. As one of my college professors, Alan Verhey, has written, the Council of 72, made up of the high priest and aristocratic elders and scribes, represented the ruling class in Jerusalem, a ruling class whose power and privilege depended in no small measure on the patronage of Rome. The storyline at the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry, according to Matthew, goes like this. Jesus is baptized by John at the Jordan, and the Spirit comes upon him with power. Then that same Spirit leads him into the wilderness. It's as if the Spirit of God, now fully animating Jesus' divine human spirit, says, All right, Son of God, let's make sure you're really ready to not just be more of the same replacement for the current Roman Jewish Sanhedrin system in Jerusalem. Let's go and prepare to let God rule and guide you. And for 40 days... After the Spirit drives him out there, Jesus endured the devil's temptations to get him to exercise his divinely provided power in ways that were out of line with the will of God and more in line with the world's empires. That's what all the challenges were really about. For 40 days, Jesus fully rejected all those attempts. And then as he came out of the wilderness, he learned that John had been arrested by King Herod Antipas. It's one of those puppet kings that was Jewish, Idumean given blessing by Rome, and his dad had been king before him. Jesus could have, right then and there, forgotten all his wilderness preparation and attempted to use his divine power to dominate and defeat that King Herod, freeing John and leading a revolution. But instead, Jesus, consistent with his choices when confronted by the devil in the wilderness, made the same choice regarding this devilish opportunity to act out violently. He didn't do it. Instead, he withdrew to Galilee. Here he was, anointed by God, to be Messiah, to be king, to be ruler. And he went where? He went away from David's throne. He went away from the place where everyone thought the Messiah would go. He did not proclaim in Jerusalem the kingdom of God is near. Instead, he proclaimed his message, which was the same as John's message, loud and clear in Galilee and not in the big new Roman cities in Galilee like Sepphoris or Tiberias. We don't hear that he ever went there in his ministry, but rather in the little Jewish villages and seaside towns. Imagine you were just told by the banker of all bankers that you were her divinely appointed son. And then she told you, with all your power, relocate to a little office in a small Iowa town. Or imagine you were the son of the slugger of all sluggers about to play for the New York Mets. And he told you instead to go play slow pitch softball in a church league in Danbury, Vermont. Where's Danbury? I'm the only one who knows. That's what this was like for Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, anointed one, full of the Holy Spirit, to move from Jerusalem to Galilee. Jesus the Christ moved out of the limelight despite the fact that he'd been given the divine power to play and dominate that big city game. Galilee was for the powerless and the weak. The religious leaders there in the towns Jesus went to anyway were not wedded to the Roman occupier in the same way as those connected to the Jerusalem elite. 
The common people were hurt for sure by the occupier in a variety of economic and social ways, such as the fish from the sea were going to soldiers, not to the people of Galilee. And the land was grabbed for the expansion of those new Greek cities like Sapporos, but the kingdom could be proclaimed there. And a transformed way of life could be lived there with less resistance anyway, right away. But there's a second thing going on in Jesus' choice of Galilee. There was ancient memory in that region. We're told by Matthew that Jesus left for Galilee so that he could make his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. It hadn't been called Zebulun and Naphtali in 760 years. Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the 12 ancient tribes of Israel, two of the 10 tribes that were knocked off when the entire northern kingdom of Israel, which was made up of those 10, ti uh, 10 tribes, was decimated by Assyria and their king Tiglath-Pileser in 733 BCE. It was backwater country now. There'd been some changes over time, but it was backwater country now, but in ancient times it was hallowed country when God brought Israel out of the wilderness wanderings. And it was a region that had been given a promise long ago soon after it fell, a promise by the prophet Isaiah. Tell me if you've ever heard this passage. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. This is from Isaiah 9. Pastor Stephanie kind of did part of it today. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later time, God will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he's named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think you've heard that one before. It seems Jesus was, was thinking about these two things as he moved away from Judah and set up his ministry in Galilee. First, to move to Galilee is to move away from power plays and struggles and to actually be able to put on display the new kingdom of God. And second, the move to Galilee was a chance to display restoration of a location that had ancient significance for the people, Zebulun and Naphtali, living as part of a new theocracy, living as expressions of the kingdom of God. So in light of the, his history with Zebulun and Naphtali, consider the start of Jesus' ministry. Imagine this. In 417, we're told that divine Jesus started proclaiming in Capernaum, a seaside town in the historic land of Zebulun and Naphtali, repent, which just means turn around. This is not just a, like, clean my heart, O oh God. This has changed my entire everything, O oh God. Turn around for the kingdom of God, a world ruled by God's way is near. It's the first verse that references his teaching in Matthew. And he could say it loud and clear out in the streets without fear, unlike John who had to say everything in the wilderness or else. And then in verse 18, the very next verse, we hear that divine Jesus walking totally unassuming without crowds around him by the shore. So I think it had to be real early in the morning, which was when the fishermen were coming in from fishing all night. He stops and talks to a couple of brothers who are extracting fish and untangling nets. Follow me and I'll make you fish for people. Now, I imagine these fishermen had just heard Jesus the day before proclaiming the coming kingdom. And maybe, just maybe, they'd been reminded of the famous words of the prophet Jeremiah, another prophet from the south who predicted hundreds of years earlier that one day there would be a great day of restoration. Jeremiah had said, as the Lord lives who took the people of Israel out of the land of the north, as in 
remember, Jeremiah says there's only one God. So even when bad things happen, it's God took them out, right? So that's like, this is the way of him saying the Assyrians took them away. As the Lord lives who took the people of Israel out of the land of the north, I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their ancestors. And maybe, just maybe, those fishermen remember the very next words in that text, which says, I am now sending for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. And here he was already calling these actual Galilean fishermen who were fishing in the north from their daily vocation, asking them to turn around and to recognize that this moment called for a radical reorientation of life. This moment called for leaving fishnets to join Jesus in the work of netting humanity for reconnection with God and working with God to encourage more and more people to live as if the world belonged to God and was under God's rule. And they left their nets. They were ready. Repent, turn around, worked for these fishermen. They immediately joined him and joined in his preaching, teaching, healing, and exorcism tour as he dramatically and rapidly reclaimed Galilee, encouraging the people living in the lands of ancient tribes to live again as if God was their sovereign, still ruled by Rome and puppet kings, but now really ruled by God and by the hope brought by the divine Savior. Friends, I'm thinking about so many things right now. So much of this move from Jerusalem to Galilee seems to resonate with what I hear from you all. So many of you tell me that you feel overwhelmed by the 24-7 media, by the grotesque wealth, by the unfettered power, by the strange and untrustworthy players, by the horrible decisions and the deceitful politicians that seem to dominate the world that defines us. You try to go visit John the Baptist once in a while, and you hear calls to social and political and even spiritual transformation, but it's hard to really live in that fully turned around reality that he proclaims when minutes after hearing from John the Baptist, you keep getting sucked right back into Jerusalem and to its power and its media and its money and its next crisis. It's depressing, despairing even. Can I encourage you, dear friends, to follow Jesus' decision and get yourself far away from our Jerusalems. Get out of Jerusalem or Washington, D.C. or Wall Street or Amazon. Get away from the computer, from social media, from the 24-7 news cycle, from C-SPAN. Maybe stick your head in once in a while for a minute, set an alarm so you don't get it 20 minutes or 20 hours to keep a beat on things. But don't get sucked in there. Live in Galilee many miles away. Live in Galilee not because you do not care, but because you do care. Live in Galilee not to avoid transformation, but because transformation is rarely found in and around the seats of political, economic, and militarized power. There are too many forces that want to dominate you, stymie you, neutralize, or corrupt you. Follow the divine Christ to Galilee and to every small place where there's greater potential for the kingdom of God to be put on display. And when you get to Galilee, remember that Galilee has an ancient history too. And when you get to places that aren't central anymore, remember that such places were important places in the past, and God made promises there, promises that the divine Savior might intend to revisit. You, dear friends, are part of a world that has always been loved and shaped and protected by God. This idea that the kingdom of God is near, that Jesus proclaimed is a brand new claim, is just wrong. It's, Jesus is reconnecting us to a God who's always cared about restoration and transformation and moments of healthy theocracy. And when you get to Galilee, which just saying, maybe for you is partly this church community, look for Jesus to be walking on the shore while you're mending your net. It probably makes sense to have a home base, maybe here, but remember your divine savior traveled from town to town, from situation to situation. Maybe that's key to following his divinity. 
Follow me means following to shelter, jail, and prison, to school and hospital, to shut-in member, and to after-school program. Follow me means follow me to the possessed and depressed and to those with other illnesses and disease. Follow me means following me to places of adoration and praise, to places of teaching and sharing, to places of service and need. Follow me means sometimes to challenge greed. And friends, again, don't be surprised if the divine Jesus who walks with us still Encountering us on our seashores asks you to drop that net and instead to go fish for people with him. If a manifestation of the divine comes to you and the voice of Jesus speaks to you, drop the net and take up his. It's possible to participate in the building and shaping of a new communal life where true repentance, total turnaround, is a very real thing. It's possible to live in a world where healings that rarely happen in our Jerusalems, exorcisms that are not happening in Jerusalem, radical upside-down teachings not being taught in our Jerusalems become almost commonplace. It's possible when guided by the divine Jesus. And there will come a time, dear friends, when the Jerusalems of our day will get nervous about the transformations going on in Galilee. Hopefully they're slow to pay attention. Hopefully the goodness and hope coming from the divine Jesus expands like mustard seed grows to giant bushes and that takes over the hillsides of Galilee. Hopefully the power of a world turning to God in a loving way of the divine Jesus wins the day so much so that it neutralizes the compromised and corrupted places. Hopefully all the tribes of the world can reconnect under God before the kings and the Sanhedrin get panicked and respond in violence. Hopefully by the time they notice, God's restoration will have won as God did in Jesus' day. The divine savior started fishing for the last, the meek, the poor, and nobody was paying attention until lots of people were transformed. And even Zebulun and Naphtali and ancient promises of God were back in the conversation. And God's promises, ancient and new, were shaping the nation, indeed impacting the entire creation. I am so thankful, friends, that the divine Jesus responded to God by caring for Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee. Drop your nets. Jesus is calling. Respond to God together with the divine Jesus. It's what we all need. Thanks be to God.